0: Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to the Extra Point Podcast for Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. Really glad you've joined us today. My name is Todd Stiles. I'm one of the pastors here at First Family Church in Ankeny, and the Extra Point Podcast is an opportunity for us to take a uh, a deeper dive, maybe a longer look at some things related to, connecting to, or right out of the text or topic from the previous Sunday. And uh, this edition of the Extra Point Podcast is going to be uh, exactly that. It's going to be a longer look for sure. You know, we normally run 8 to 10 minutes here on the Extra Point Podcast. But today, I'm going to indulge you and um, just let you know up front, we're actually going to be re-airing a message I preached back in 2012 on the Holy Spirit, especially uh, the text in Acts 2 about Pentecost. Now, here's what's going on. Um, This coming Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, so that's a day in the Christian calendar, in the liturgy of that calendar, in which we celebrate uh, Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension. And so in light of what's coming this Sunday in the Christian calendar, Pentecost Sunday, I thought I would air this message about Pentecost, and, and Pentecost is um, uh, an event in which the Holy Spirit's the central character in view, and His work, of course. So I thought it'd be fitting just to air this message. It's going to be a lot longer now than 10 minutes, okay? But I want to ask you whether you're driving, whether you're jogging, maybe you're doing chores, maybe you're walking, uh, maybe this is playing in the background at home, Um Go ahead and listen all the way through and let this message be just another um, nail in the the board, so to speak, that to hold it in place as we continue to grow and learn in our knowledge and understanding of God the Holy Spirit. I'll walk you through some portions of Acts chapter 2. And here's one thing I found very intriguing and affirming. There's a lot of common language between... Uh, The series we're in now and what I preached back in 2012, and that was uh, very—it was humbling and encouraging, and it showed me that God is continuing in my life personally to show me more and more about the Holy Spirit, uh, lead me with hunger for more of His control and more of His manifest, active presence. And uh, I I think just the unity I've sensed, even in my own language and uh, understanding between 2012 and now— it just was very affirming that God is continuing to work in my heart, and I think in our church, we're by no means at any kind of you know, arriving place on the Holy Spirit. But there is, a, there is and there has been a continuing desire to see God's Holy Spirit manifestly active in our church. Uh, you know, that is God's presence and power. His, is, it's the Holy Spirit. He is the one that shows up to mediate God's presence and power among us. And so, even as I listened to this message and I read through this transcript, I was just, um, I was humbled and I was thankful that God is proving to me, and I think to us, to continue to work in us and lead us to a deeper understanding of of Himself, the Holy Spirit. So, hang with me today on the Extra Point podcast. Uh, it'll be longer than ten, but I think it'll be well worth it. And so. Here's to our continued growth and sanctification through the Word of God. Here's a message from 2012, Understanding Pentecost.
1: Take your Bibles, find the book of Acts. We're going to begin this morning in chapter 2 because we left off at the end of chapter 1 last week, so it makes sense to begin in chapter 2, doesn't it? And uh, the Word of God brings change to us, and uh, I think this week will be no exception as we take some time to understand the The beginning aspects, I guess you'd call it, of this thing called Pentecost. Uh, It's talked about in Acts chapter two, which is a rather long chapter. I'm just going to take the first 13 verses today and kind of lay out for you really um, the beginning aspects of it. And I want to kind of make a simple statement to you You can write it down. It's not on the screen behind me today, but you can jot this down. But I want you to kind of get this statement. I'll say it several times today because it's kind of the big idea. I'm going to throw it out to you right off the bat, all right? But we're going to see this morning that God the Holy Spirit has come and is present and powerful like never before, all right? Those words are chosen deliberately. I want you to write them down. That God the Holy Spirit has come and he is present and powerful Like never before. The reason I want to throw that big idea out to you early is because often once we begin to read Acts 2, especially the beginning verses, the typical Westerner, the typical American gets sidetracked with words like tongues. I'm just going to put this out there, okay? We say, oh, look at this. And we kind of get maybe envious or curious or maybe on that whole scale. We're just like wondering. Then we see things like other languages, and then we see later 3,000 saved, and suddenly, watch this now, watch me. Our minds can go to, to, to things that maybe were the effects of Pentecost at that moment when the Holy Spirit came, as opposed to the real point of Pentecost. The point of Pentecost, watch this, is not the tongues. I'll say more about that. We're going to talk about tongues and those controversial gifts over the next several weeks at midweek. No one here is avoiding them. But I want to kind of lay, at the very beginning, lay this out that the point of Pentecost is not tongues or language, uh, languages. It's not all those effects, even though those are at times biblical and they're fun to read. The point is that the Holy Spirit came. Hallelujah. God, the Holy Spirit came. Let's not miss the real main fact of Pentecost. Because perhaps we get detoured or sidetracked by some of the effects of it. And I want to be careful. I say that I'm not saying that that uh, tongues and people being saved are detours. Don't hear me say that in a weird way. Even though it is kind of what I said, <laughs> I'm not saying it. Perhaps as you're hearing it, I'm saying the point of this of this text is that God, the Holy Spirit, came, and that's a past tense word. Did you know we're not waiting on the Holy Spirit to come anymore? He came once, 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension. He came. And so now we have his presence and power like never before. Now, I suspect you disagree with the last part of that thesis statement, that big idea. You're like, well, that's not what it seems like to me when I read the New Testament, Todd. It seems like, man, it was way better then than now. What do you mean like never before? Well, I'll get to that. But I'm going to stand by and maintain that that Pentecost is really about the Holy Spirit of God. And when he came, and now the result is that we have his presence and power like never before. What do you say we dig in and let's focus on the real hero of Pentecost, so to speak. The, the center character. Acts 2, verse 1. We'll read a little bit, talk a little bit, follow along with me. I plan to, at some point in this message, I'll talk about the two symbols primarily of the Holy Spirit. I'll take a few questions from you. If you have some, you can text them into our number on the worship folder on the screen. It might scroll through at times. Uh, and then I'll take a few of those, and then I'll close with a couple of ways that we can, um, a couple of things we can kind of hang our hats on about the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, that's an interesting phrase because it means they were waiting on you since the the nuance of that phrase. When it arrived, like they're kind of waiting for something and that's what they were told to do. Right. Go and wait for the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting. It was 10 days when that day arrived. Pentecost means 50. When it arrived, they were all together in one place. This verse simply shows their obedience. Isn't that awesome? They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. And suddenly, that word indicates to me, they probably weren't expecting Pentecost, which means 50. They weren't expecting the Holy Spirit to come on this day. All they knew were they were to wait, right? They didn't know it would be on this day, perhaps. Maybe some had a clue, but I tend to think they they realized it more after the fact. They were in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, circle the word sound, because Pentecost is something that, first of all, they heard. And it was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. This is a term used to, to paint for us an analogy, okay? So this sound must have been something that had the The uh, audible recognition of like a mighty wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. More than likely this speaks of the 120, probably in that upper room area. And so the sound of a mighty wind just fills the whole house. And then this Pentecost, which at this point is only audible, becomes visible. Watch this, verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them. Circle the word appeared. So now Pentecost is audible and it's visible. This coming of the Holy Spirit is something they are seeing and hearing. And the Holy Spirit says here, These tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Verse 4 explains now what they saw and what they heard. And they were all filled with, With the Holy Spirit, the word filled there is the same word used in speaking of the room. By the way, the room was filled with these people. Now they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues. Now watch this as the spirit gave them utterance. Don't miss that phrase. Even the tongues that they spoke as a result of what happened at Pentecost, that was the spirit motivating, prompting, enabling that. Which shows us that the Holy Spirit is the main character here so far, right? He has come. This is when he came. And it sounded like a wind. And it looked like a fire. Divided tongues that sat or rested above them. And that kind of gives you a, a logistical, almost historical understanding of it. Let me give you a couple of more historical aspects of this that I think are quite intriguing. These aren't mandated by Scripture. But they do help us understand some... Perhaps um, connections to, to the other parts of the Bible. This is in direct contrast to the Tower of Babel. When multi nations were gathered, they were they thought they were one, but they were actually selfishly one. And because they didn't bring glory to God and speak of the mighty works of God, God actually brought confusion and divided them. You recall that Tower of Babel Genesis here? God does the opposite. I think it's quite intriguing. They are already divided nationally. They come together under the banner of Christ. And even with their multi languages, God unites them to speak as one. And they all hear the great work of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? If you were to contrast Babel and Pentecost, you'd find an intriguing study. Also, there is some rabbinic tradition behind Pentecost. As you know, uh, Pentecost means 50. It was the 50th day after the resurrection. So in the Jewish calendar, it was the beginning of what's called the Feast of Weeks. It was kind of the beginning of a certain element of their harvest season. Most scholars believe that in the beginning of the Israelites' time, this is the very day that God gave the law at Sinai. So in one aspect, you might could say in that economy... God gave the law as a way to help his people, but now in this economy, on that same day, centuries later, God gives the Holy Spirit to help his people. Now there's no verse that says that exactly based on the Jewish calendar, but most historical uh, documents seem to indicate that that's probably true, that it was on the very same day. So if you're a Jew in Jerusalem and you're waiting in this place, you might have some indication that, man, this is a pretty big day for us. It's the first day of the Feast of Weeks. It's when Moses gave the law for Mount Sinai. So the fact that then God does show up as wind and as fire, and he fills you with the Holy Spirit, when it's all said and done, you'll look back and say, wow, this is just a big day. It's always been a big day, and it was a big day today. Does that make sense? They are probably kind of expecting it from that in regards. Well, verse 5 kind of picks up a different angle now. That's kind of the angle from inside the room. Let's read verse 5. It says here, they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Now, they were, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation, circle the words, every nation. The known world has gathered in Jerusalem, at least the Jews from every part of the known world were gathered, uh, devout men. And at this sound, probably referring back to the sound of the speaking in other tongues, this would not, I think, refer to the wind. I think this is the sound of the folks speaking in other languages. That's what tongues mean. It means a language. The word is glossa in Greek, so it just simply means a language that you know. I don't think this is referring to some kind of unintelligible, ecstatic utterance. It's a language, probably, of, of... of the men that were represented from all these nations. Well, these men, these devout Jews were hearing this sound and the multitude came together. Now, in verse six, you probably have a transportation taking place. Watch this. They were in the room, 120 of them. At some point, they probably and Luke doesn't record this. but They probably left the upper room and went down to what they call Solomon's porch. It was a rather large area where multitudes could gather. And so probably the excitement and the, uh, the sound, these things happening, it was just a very intriguing thing. So it just kind of spilled out into a larger area where the multitude had come together and they were bewildered. Here's why. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, if you want a succinct definition of the gift of tongues, that's it. I mean, the Bible answers its own questions. And so someone says, what is the gift of tongues? It's hearing someone speak in your own native language for the purpose of bringing someone to Christ and glorifying God. This is what happened there. All these different Jews from all these different nations were gathered, but no one was watch this left out or confused. They were amazed. They were astonished. They were saying things like this verse seven. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans It'd be like, you know, and this is going to be a really rough analogy here, but I'm going to go with it. OK, just work with me here. It'd be like me, who's got roots in Tennessee, being perfectly understood in Boston. Does that make sense? Like, man, we understand Todd perfectly. Isn't he like a southerner? You know, and I'm saying all the Boston words appropriately and correctly, however you say them. Or it'd be like someone in Canada, eh? Uh, you know, hearing uh, someone from Alabama and saying, man, I'm getting you perfectly. I'm tracking with you totally. In other words, they're saying you're from Galilee. You shouldn't be able to speak like this and like this. But God, through his Holy Spirit, enabled uh, these 120 who were gathered and waited to speak in the known languages of the world. As evidence, the Holy Spirit came. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse eight said he begins in verse nine to list some of these native language places. Here's the best way to see this. okay? because we can read this and that's geography based on that day. And you're probably thinking, man, where are all those places. Here's what I would do if I were you. I would just in your mind think Iran or Iran, however you say that and work your way west. That's really what this list does. It starts in modern day Iran and works to Iraq to Turkey, Egypt, northern Africa, Italy, it just kind of moves east to west. Let's read what the scriptures say about that culture in that day, that geography. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. By the way, many of these are places where Paul actually visited late in the book of Acts he goes on in verse uh, 10, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews. Now, watch this. And proselytes. So even those who were actually non-Jewish but were buying into Judaism, even though they were a Gentile, they were gathered here from all these nations. What actually Luke says is every nation under heaven, the known world was gathered. Now, watch this, guys. I'm going to kind of press pause for a minute. You're seeing Acts 1-8 fulfilled right here. When, when Jesus said, you'll be witnesses in, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Guess what? Here are men, Jews, from every part of the known world who will leave here in a little bit and take the gospel back and fulfill Acts 1-8. Isn't that awesome? The Holy Spirit is already enabling this to happen. So all these folks from all these nations, they're both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Here he picks back up on the situation. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is really the uh, another more expanded definition. It's when in your own language, you're brought to like a unifying understanding of of not just someone's spirituality. See, tongues doesn't lift you up. If God were to give someone with the gift of tongues, a known language in order to, so that someone could hear the gospel and be saved, it wouldn't be like, man, Dan, you're awesome. I wouldn't think much about Dan. I would say, wow, God has done some mighty things. Are you with me? Again, we see that the real beginning part of this day of Pentecost isn't about all those effects that we sometimes get Distracted by it. Hear that right, okay? It's about this fact. The Holy Spirit came. He unified believers in this room that spilled out to those who were in that Solomon's porch area. They could not believe they were hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. When these folks were really Galileans. And still, even in the midst of that great miracle... Though some were amazed, verse 12 says, and perplexed, they said to one another, what does this mean? Others, in a mocking way, said they are filled with new wine. Now, here's what I love about this last verse of this section, verse 13. I think Paul draws upon this experience when he commands believers in Ephesus. He says, be filled with the Spirit and don't be drunk with wine. I think in Paul's mind, he's thinking back to the first day of Pentecost. When those first believers were so controlled by the spirit that folks thought they were drunk. You're acting like a drunk man. You look like a drunk woman. You're speaking like you're out of your head. You're saying things. I'm not sure what you're saying, but those from that country knew and they knew what it was pointing to. I think it's intriguing that whenever the Holy Spirit does an amazing work, you would think all would be on board. But the truth is opinion is always split, isn't it? Some will be amazed and say, wow, look what God did. And some will say, ah, oh, you're just drunk. You're out of your mind. You're kind of on the tilting side. And We're going to cover the rest of this chapter in the next two weeks. Here is the initial understanding of the event, though. When the Holy Spirit came. To, to bring even more insight into this event. When the Holy Spirit came, have I told you that yet? This is when the Holy Spirit came to bring more insight into this occurrence, this event. I think the two symbols are are very important. The Bible records that they came as uh, not they that the Holy Spirit came as as wind and as fire. Now the word as and the word like they're important. They're words of simile, they're analogy words. So don't think the Holy Spirit necessarily is a fire. The Holy Spirit is God. You with me? Don't think the Holy Spirit is wind. It sounded like wind, but the Holy Spirit is God. Just like the Holy Spirit's not a dove, but at Jesus' baptism, it looked like something descending like a dove. Does that make sense? But here the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, comes and he has this uh, wind and fire type of symbolism to, dis- to kind of display some things about his work in nature. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of time here and and let you see from Scripture what wind and fire represent in relation to God's work. Okay, I'll do this kind of quickly in one way, but I need you to kind of grasp it. When you think about these two symbols. uh, Wind really speaks to life. Throughout the Bible, it speaks to uh, to the Holy Spirit bringing life into things. Let me give you some examples. Ezekiel thirty seven. The prophet sees a valley of just bones laying around and he's told to prophesy. You can read this is like verses one through 14. And God says to the prophet "Prophesy that, that something's going to cause these bones to come to life. And sure enough, a strong wind, a breath of God comes along and these bones being to kind of be joined together with sinew and ligament and flesh. And they come to life because of the breath of God. And in, in the Greek and the Hebrew, the word wind and breath are the same thing. Some translators tend to think you might could say that there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing breath. That God breathed on these 120. By the way, in John 20, 22, I'll mention this later. The Bible records that Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Same word. You could say Jesus wended the disciples. It's the same word. Context determines how we, how we use it. Genesis chapter 1. I'm giving you some more background on the word wind here. Genesis 1, when God is creating things, obviously Christ is involved in that based on John 1. The Holy Spirit's role is to hover. It's to kind of bring the breath of God to the face of the earth. In other words, that's what really brings life to this planet that was void and just kind of uh, there. The Spirit of God was over the face of the waters. In other words, it was it was breathing there. It was It was what kind of... Brought life. John 3, when Nicodemus is talking to Christ. He says, you must be born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, how does that happen? And then Christ begins to talk about how you you, you don't know where the, the wind comes from. You just see its effect. It's funny, Christ talks about the wind at the same time as talking about being born again. In other words, this breath, this wind of God is what... Brings life to us. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. God creates a man and he breathes into his nostrils life. Same word. Could be used as wind. God winded Adam as well. So when you see the word wind or the word breath several times in both Old and New Testaments. You get the, here's the idea you get. Wow. God just brought life to someone. Let me translate that to a theological perspective about our salvation. When God saved you, he, through the Holy Spirit, breathed life into you. It's called regeneration. You were dead in your sins, Ephesians 2, but God made you alive. He wended you. He breathed upon you. And your dead, dry bones came to life. Does that make sense, guys? That's the, that's the idea behind wind. I think at Pentecost, when they saw, the, the excuse, when they heard this mighty rushing wind sound, I mean, it was God saying, I'm going to breathe some life into you 120. And this does raise a number of questions. I'll get to one in a minute. It's already come in early. But just hold on to that simple nugget right now. Wind, by and large, re- represents the life of The life breathing uh, of God's nature. When it comes to fire, it really symbolizes God's presence. In fact, more so than any other symbol in the Old and New Testaments, fire seemed to typify and resemble that God is here. You remember Exodus chapter 2 when Moses is tending sheep? And he sees a bush burning, but not burning up. What does he say? He says, I must step aside and see this great sight. That's kind of a King James Version translation. But it's a very logical conclusion. Hmm, A bush that's not burning up. I think I'll take a break from shepherding. Check this situation out. It was God speaking to Moses from the bush. And the bush was on fire. God was present. Isaiah 6. Isaiah says he was touched with tongs from off the altar. And they were tongs of fire. Man, God was present in Isaiah's life. Here's two more in Exodus chapter 13. When they left Egypt and they were in the wilderness, how did God lead them? By a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they could count on God's presence and his guidance by looking for the fire. I think one of the most astounding examples is Exodus 19 and 20. When God did give the law, which I do think historically was on the same day as Pentecost, It says the mountain was shaking and trembling, Mount Sinai, and there were fires and thunderings. The people stood afar off and said, Moses, don't let God talk to us. We will die. You talk to us. That's a compliment in the back doorway, isn't it? But they saw this mountain and the smoke and the fire. They knew God was present. So when fire appeared as tongues that were divided and resting on people, in addition, in addition to the wind, here's, the, here's kind of the conclusion you're making if you're a disciple on day 50 in his upper room. Wow! God is showing up and he is breathing life into us. That's kind of the point. And sure enough, if you put those together, what you find is that fire and wind equal great power. And so what you have here is the life-giving presence of God in a way that was not known before and the result was the power of God like they've never seen before I'll say more the next few weeks about how this fulfills a prophecy in Joel as well as Ezekiel, we'll go there but I just want to focus initially on this exact area and say to you that this is the understanding that we draw from this historical uh, uh, text, that Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came And suddenly, they understood God's life-giving presence and power like never before. The reason I tell you that is because you and I live in the wake of that. The Holy Spirit has come. And there should not be a lack of God's presence. There isn't. But we should not think there is a lack of God's presence or power because Acts 2 has happened. God is here. He is among us and he is in us. We have his presence and his power like never before. Hopefully you're still questioning and wondering a few things. Your your mind is kind of tracking with some like, what does that mean here? I'm going to get some of that. Let me just explain to you personally where I, where I probably most experienced this. Uh, it was when I was ordained in May of 1987. I don't know why certain events seem to have more of the Holy Spirit's power. I don't know why. Sorry, I, I'm not that much of a genius to understand all that sometimes. But there are moments in your life when God's presence and power, they do seem more dramatic than other times. And we had spent about four or five hours in an exam room. They were questioning us about our theological beliefs and stances. And I passed. And so we took a few hours break. And they said, come back tonight and we'll have a service. And we're going to lay hands on you. And I was probably, what, 87, 20. Born in 64. What does that make me? 20-something years old. So a young man just out of college and working a job in Augusta. Went back home from ordination. And so, so, so we're in this prayer gathering afterwards. A guy speaks. And. There were like four or five of us, actually, and there were probably 120 to 150, 200 preachers there that night. And so after the message, they had it all kneel down at the front and then they would come and one by one, each of these pastors and preachers and elders would lay hands on us. And it first started, you know, it was emotional just from the fact that it was a long day and you had you discussed theology a ton and. Just, it, was a really, it was a really good day, but when we knelt to pray. I mean, we spent probably two and a half to three hours just in prayer after the message. Now, I was like 23 or so, and I wasn't ready for that. I mean, you can preach about how you should be ready for that. But the truth is, I was like, man, can I get off my knees or can we do something else as I just pray so much? You have all these thoughts like man, this is forever. But while we're praying and these are like 80 year old men and there's younger men and there's guys who retired who just I mean godly pastors after about an hour, man, you, I began to feel this incredible weight, just a burden, and I began to weep and cry. And I thought, well, I'm probably just emotionally wrung out, you know. I'm probably hungry, probably thirsty, but it was a different kind of response. And suddenly, for the next hour and a half or so, uh, I could not stop just uh, crying as God's presence and this responsibility of preaching the Bible uh, became really weighty to me. Does that make sense? And men just kept flooding by, laying hands on me, praying. And they weren't in a hurry. They weren't doing the popcorn prayers. They weren't saying, "I got a minute." And they just prayed till they were done. And I think I was about done. And after about two and a half hours, man, I mean, I was drenched. You thought I sweated two weeks ago when I was up there pitting out? My goodness, man, man, that morning, whoo, that after that evening, man, I was a, I was drenched. And I got up from that prayer time, and I remember just thinking, if that's what the Holy Spirit's presence and power is like, I want to live there every day. And I don't. I don't live into the guilt of thinking I should. I don't don't quite know how to process all that, to be frank with you, okay? Is that okay to say to you? But at that moment, wow, God's power and presence were dramatically uh, real to me in ways that I've only known a few other times. The reason that my ordination could take that—I use the word feel or look—the reason that could happen is because Acts two happened. I didn't bring anything about. I didn't do anything. God didn't say, "Oh, you know, I think I'll show up now, Todd." No, Acts two occurred. The Holy Spirit has come. He is present. His power is available. And there are times that we experience it to greater degrees than others. We are filled and controlled in a greater way than other times. But guess what? The Holy Spirit hasn't gone back and forgotten you. Holy Spirit didn't forget to plug himself in and recharge one night. The Holy Spirit, since this day 50 after the resurrection, has been in believers and is empowering believers. He has come. And you have the presence of God and the power of God like never before. You do. Here's how I know you have it like never before. Because He is with you like never before in the sense that He is no longer just around you. He is in you. This is something new that started on day 50 and has moved forward. Does that make sense? Prior to this day, the Holy Spirit wasn't in people. He was on them. Uh, He was empowering them, let's say, and influencing them. But the Holy Spirit didn't reside in people. From Pentecost forward, Jesus went away, obviously the ascension. From this day forward, the Holy Spirit now is in us. John chapter 14, when Jesus said, I must go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. Think about that. Jesus actually said, you're better off if I leave. I would never think that about Jesus, would you? It's like, could you stay another three or four hundred years, please? You know, that's what we're thinking, right? He says, no, it's to your advantage if I go away, because then the helper can come. He's not just going to be with you. He's going to be in you. Think about this. When Christ was here, he was as a human limited to time and space. But the Holy Spirit here, man, God is as present in this room in the life of believers because he's in us. Those who believe as he is in Zambia right now, where Nate is probably in the late afternoon. He's wrapping up teaching the Holy Spirit and God's power and presence is there just to the same degree this year because the Holy Spirit's in those believers. That make sense? There's no time and space um, uh, location issue. He's in us and he's in all believers universally worldwide at the same time. That's a great advantage. So he is with us like never before. Listen, church. You do not have a second-class Christian experience. You're not living on disciple leftovers. Well, we just don't have it as good as they did. That's crazy. You have an even more advantageous position. He is with us like never before. If you read in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, John 14... Romans 8, about this presence that the Holy Spirit gives us, you'll find that it's usually in the context of the trials of life. And I want to say to you, I imagine every person here is bearing their own burden to some degree. I mean, we've all got a wagon to pull, you know what I'm saying? Yours could be with, if you've got like 12 little minions around the house, and it's just like being you know, a stay-at-home mom is just about to drive you crazy at times. Or stay-at-home dad, or... Both of you together like, man, this is raising little kids is hard. Maybe it's a marriage issue. Maybe it's a wayward child issue. They're already grown up or maybe it's financial issues or maybe it's a health issue. You You could list a number of things that we all at times struggle with. Do you know why we can make it through trials? It's because God is with us. And you're not staring at a cloud or a pillar of fire or going to a tabernacle if you're a believer God is with you inside you. In every trial you have, right in the middle of that trial, God is right in the middle of it with you. I mean, Susan and Jeff want to make a trek somewhere to some temple to finally be with God. He is in you and with you in the middle of your trial. He is, it, that's never happened. This is new. Pentecost forward means God is with us like never before. He is in us. This also means we are empowered like never before. Now, watch this very carefully. John 14, I believe it's verse 12. In John 14 through 16 it talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. OK, so read through these two or three chapters. But in that verse, I think it says that if you believe in Christ, I think it's the way it worded. You believe in Christ, you'll do the works that I do. And then he makes a statement. Jesus says, then you'll do even greater works than me. Think about that. It's like, man, Jesus saying that if you believe in him, you'll do greater works. Todd, uh, that's not There's no way I can do greater works than Jesus. But don't forget the last phrase of the verse. And this is important. He says, because I'm going to my father. Now, why would Jesus tag on to this statement? Aaron, you'll do greater works than me. That's what Jesus said to these disciples. You'll do greater works than me because I'm going to my father. But he's saying this, guys, when I go away. You won't just have the gift, which is Jesus Christ. You'll have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And every person will be empowered to minister universally because the Holy Spirit is in you. And you will actually see more things done than I could do if I were just here alone. The word greater there is a word that means like a mount or size wise. So when Christ is here in a certain location, time and space, he does a great amount of works, right? But imagine taking Christ's followers, who now have the Holy Spirit in them, and saying, "Spread across the globe, millions of you, you'll probably get more done number wise than Jesus did when He was here." That's all He's saying. So when there's the fire drill, <laughs> so when He says you'll do greater works, He's saying, "Guys, because I'm going away and the Comforter's coming." You'll have the Holy Spirit. You'll have God in you. And no matter where you go, man, you'll get so much done for the kingdom. You'll get more done than I could get done if I stayed physically and you personally. That's hard to think about, isn't it? But I told you we're in a more advantageous place now than more than the disciples were. Guys, this is incredible. Do you see how quickly we undermine, forget, and we just move ourselves away from the Holy Spirit? This is what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit who came. But he is with us like never before God is. He's in us. And he's empowering us like never before. That his gifts universally are empowered and then they're employed. And and the globe can experience impact simultaneously. Because of the power of God through the Holy Spirit. That's just a good deal. Does that make sense? So it is not... A, it's not... A, A hyperbolic statement or some preacher talk to say to you that Acts 2 shows us that the Holy Spirit came and we have God's presence and power like never before. That's what I hunger for, don't you? Well, a couple of questions here and then I'll wrap up. Any questions that we're going to have from audience? I'll take one. Here's the first one: Were the disciples saved at Pentecost? Since that is when they received the Holy Spirit. Good question. I would say no; they weren't saved at Pentecost. Now, I want to admit to you this is a difficult question because of John twenty twenty two, which says, I think I mentioned it earlier. Jesus looked at the disciples and he breathed on them and he said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." So, my best preacher guess is that after christ was glorified which speaks of his crucifixion based on the words of john he said after he's glorified he then breathed on them they kind of received the spirit in the sense of uh, solidifying their status as believers and followers because many of them took this full three years to really come on board by the way but after he was glorified and they saw him crucified he breathed on them i think kind of solidifying them sealing them but some of the activation for power and service didn't come until Pentecost. That was probably, you know, 10, 20, 30 days after uh, 10 after their ascension, of course. Now, that's a I wouldn't die over that. I wouldn't preach that as doctrine and say, you better agree with me or you're out of the church. That's not what all we're saying. But it's interesting. He you can't deny what Jesus said before uh, his ascension that he breathed on the disciples, received the Holy Spirit. But you find this here they're waiting for the promise. So there must be some sense in which he is actually saying, you're mine already. You're born again. I breathed life into you. But here is a sense of almost like a, like an activation, a, an empowerment. So, good question. But I do think the disciples were already born again. Now, those who heard the disciples in the porch area, they weren't born again. When they heard the message, the mighty works of God through the, in their own native tongue, they did believe the message. And we'll see next week. That's because of Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit's power. And they did become a Christian. But these initial disciples, and uh, I think they were already, you might use the word, saved there. Good question. One more or not. Do you see the fulfillment of the Great Commission from Matthew 28 here in Acts 2? I do see the fulfillment of the Great Commission, but I don't see it completely fulfilled in the sense of, uh, like, everyone's saved. Who needs to be saved? Does that make sense? There are still folks who should hear the gospel. Romans 10 is still in play. We go, we preach, because those... Uh, people need to hear, and you can't hear if you don't go, and you can't go if you're not sent. But I do think every nation of the known world heard the gospel here and went back to their areas, which is why we can say the return of Christ is imminent. A good man in our church questioned me a few weeks ago about that. He said, "Todd, how can it be imminent if some of the signs aren't done yet?" The truth is, I believe the verse that says that all the nations must hear before Christ can come back is actually already started being fulfilled. It started right here in Acts one and two. All the nations heard. So Christ is not held back by some other sign still waiting to happen. They've all, I believe, started. He could still come at any moment. Any more questions? We'll take one more. Do you see a difference between the tongues spoken in Acts 2 and the tongues of angels spoken of in 1 Corinthians 13? Great question. I knew we could get at least one. That's awesome. Um, I do see a difference in that one is a heavenly language. One is an earthly language. But I don't think... Either of them are unknown. Now, you'll find among our elders differences on this issue. OK, we are a band of brothers love each other, but we do see some of these uh, preferences differently. I tend to see tongues of men and tongues of angels as known languages. Now, you wouldn't know uh, the tongues of angels if you heard it. It's like you probably wouldn't know Swaziland language if you heard it, you know. So to you, it's all unknown. But I don't think it's unknown in the sense that it's invented at the moment. There are some who believe that the gift of tongues means you just get this kind of private, individual, invented language. I don't believe that, personally. I believe it's a known language based on the linguistics of the word, glosa. But I don't think that being a known language means that it can't be a heavenly language. Now, the other side of the coin is that some believe that's a hyperbole Paul is using. He's saying, man, if you spoke in tongues of men and even of tongues of angels, like, if it were really possible. And that's a legitimate view, by the way. We have elders in our church who believe that. And so Paul is saying that's not even possible. But if it were, if you could even speak in that language, but you didn't have love, you'd be like a big fat zero. You know, I don't see it as hyperbole, even though I must admit that's a legitimate understanding of those texts. He says, what if you give your body to be burned several times in those first three verses? He speaks in somewhat extreme fashion, but you could actually give your body to be burned, couldn't you? And those are things you could do. So I tend to think you could speak in a heavenly language, but it's not an unknown, invented utterance that comes out of you know some gibberish stat, status or state, state. So I do think the gift of tongues um, is a viable option as far as the Holy Spirit's gifts. But I do think we have to employ them and deploy them biblically. And I've rarely seen the gift of tongues used biblically, to be honest with you. The only time I've seen it used biblically was probably regarding the mission field in non-language areas, uh, where folks were led to Christ. Now, that's just my experience, so don't hear that as doctrine. Okay? Uh, Good questions. We're going to cover more of these things as we move forward in midweek as well, so keep some of your questions handy. And after the service today, elders are here available to talk to you as well and kind of work through some of these things with you. Here's the point we want to make. That regardless of where, where you land on tongues or even some of those peripheral issues, The Holy Spirit, say it with me, the Holy Spirit came. And God is with us. He is in us. And He is empowering us like never before. But what for, Todd? The text tells us, and I'll end with this. The text tells us. It's verse 11. We're hearing all these things in our own native tongues. What are they hearing? The mighty works of God. That's why the Holy Spirit empowers you and gifts you and is in you. You're not to brag on the Holy Spirit. You're to brag on Jesus. Because that's what the Holy Spirit loves to do. He does not speak of his own authority, we're told. He speaks only by the Father's authority. And he doesn't even speak on his own. He doesn't tell of his own things. He speaks of Christ. And here in this very first example of the Holy Spirit coming, guess what he does? He empowers people to talk about the mighty works of God. What were the mighty works of God? They were what just happened culturally and locally. Hey, hear about that man that was crucified? And that guy that was claiming to be God? Remember Jesus? Yeah. Man, they took him. They beat him. They crucified Then he came back from the dead. This whole band of folks say he's living. He's alive. That's what they're saying God did. That's the mighty works of God being talked about. The Holy Spirit gave them utterance and power to speak of that. And if he gives you utterance and power and when he gives you utterance and power, it'll be to speak about the mighty works of God, namely Jesus Christ. That's what his purpose is, his goal. And if your talk and language and actions are all about other people and you. You're not powered by the Holy Spirit. You're powered by your human spirit. The Holy Spirit will drive you to lift up Jesus. To talk about the mighty works of God. That's one of the best signs. You're walking in the Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. That you belong to God and are sealed by the Holy Spirit.